Well, as I alluded to, to earlier, we're in John, and we're in John chapter 2. Uh, first, I, I need to tell you a story. Uh, I was probably, I think, either 18 or 19. I think at this story, I was uh, 18, 19 years old, right in that range. And my buddies and I, when we were li- I was living in Georgia, I was at the University of Georgia in, in undergrad, and my aunt and uncle have a lake house down in the panhandle of Florida. And so I was, they let us go down there, and I was like, hey, guys, let's go. So we go to this lake house. It was actually just a double-wide trailer there on the lot, amazing little place. I grew up. It's where I learned how to water ski. And they would let us use their ski boat, everything else. Um, and you're going, who would let some 18- and 19-year-old kids use their ski boat? Well, it was like an 18-foot-long Johnson & Murphy motor. I think it was 115 horsepower. So I learned to slalom ski on the, on the back of a boat with 115 horsepower. To give you some understanding, I can paddle that fast. Um, like you literally, we would say, like before you're in the water, you got your rope right here, your skis up, and you go, go! And you do this <gasps> for about 45 seconds before your face is out of the water. And that's where, but it was amazing. I absolutely loved it. And you could touch alligators as you went by because like, it was a crazy place. And it was just a really, really cool thing. We were literally going around with flashlights at night to find all the gators. And the next morning, we'd wake up at 7.30 to hit the water. And it wasn't until recently I recognized those gators were still in the water. Um, But it was a lot of fun. One day, the boat's not working that well, though, and it just kind of puts out. And we were really, I was just a very mechanically-minded individual. The boat's not running, and I figure out, it only took me about 45 minutes. that the, The problem was we were out of gasoline. And so my buddies and I, we get in my car, and I had the coolest car. I had a 1986 Toyota Celica. Um, it was red, not fully red because of the oxidation of the sun. So, but if you looked at it at night, it was cool looking. Um, in the dark, it looked great. Um, otherwise, it was a bit pink. Um, but it was my Toyota Celica. I thought it was cool. And so here we are. We're like, hey, we grabbed the five-gallon uh, ga- uh, five containers that we had for the gasoline, throw them in the back of the car, head to the gas station, fill them up. We're like, man, we're just, look at us. We figured out no gasoline, only wasted half the day. We're going to go fill this thing up. Let's go ski some more. Wakeboard, that's when wakeboarding was cool. I don't know who came up with wakeboarding, but it's where you sit on your knees and you ruin your knees as you go on the water. Um, and so here we are. We're like, we're ready to go do this. Fill up the containers with gas. Go back. And I'm like, guys, like, I, that gas smell is really strong. Is, that, is the gas smell strong to anybody else? So like, oh, no, it's fine. It's fine. So we just keep going. I'm like, God, no, I'm telling you, like, don't light anything because I really smell that gasoline. So they're like, no, it's fine. It's just probably didn't get the container all the way on, the, the, the lid of it. And so we finally get back to the lake house. We get out. The lake house is on dirt roads and stuff. So you're messing around, you're going all over the place. And so here we are, we finally get back. We open up the trunk of my Toyota Celica 1986 Red. Did I tell you about that one? Amazing. Um, and one of the containers, five gallons of gas, had been dumped over, and almost all of it was out. That's the first time I felt you were sincere <laughs> in one of my stories. Like, oh, brutal. Right? So the gasoline is all over the place, puddles and puddles of gas sitting on the mat. And I'm like, oh, this is not good. Um, and so we get one container out. Of course, one of my friends, being such a good friend, he's like, I got one ga- I've got one container. Let's just go ski. I'm like, I got to fix my car. Um, and so I rip out the carpeting that's in the back of it. And I get all that out. And then my buddy's like, hey, I got an idea. Don't worry about it. I'll be back soon jumps in the, uh, one of the trucks that were there. He takes off, goes to the store, comes back with a 25-pound bag of cat litter, dumped the entire thing in the trunk of the car. He's like, that'll take care of it. And I just, I just looked at him. I said, what is wrong with you? <laughs> You're probably learning a little bit about me right now with the types of people that I hung out with. But like, what's, no, he said, no, no, I've done this before. I'm like, exactly, what's wrong with you? And he's like, no, it's going to absorb all the fluid, all the liquid, and all the aroma and everything else. Like, it's going to take care of it. Don't worry about it. And, I mean, it, it, did, it helped a lot. I did that numerous times. And let it, I would leave the trunk open whenever it was sunny. 
Um, only once did I forget to close it when it wasn't sunny, but I would leave it open, let it dry out, and a couple of years later, it smelled better. Um, <laughs> it took a while, but all of a sudden, he ran out, grabbed 25 pounds of cat litter, brought it, threw it in the trunk of my car to help remove the, the, the odor and all the stench and everything else that was coming from it. And so this is something where he's like, hey, he took something that was intended for one thing and he used it for something completely different, but it worked. And we do that with other stuff too, like where you take something that was intended for one purpose and you use it for something else and you're like, yeah, like any kid in Michigan knows that the real value of a coat hanger is not to hold, hold clothes. What is it? You put marshmallows on the end of it. Put it over a fire, Right? Isn't that how you roast marshmallows, yes or no? Hello? Like, you don't actually buy something that's made for that. That's called wasting money if you're Dutch. I should just go. I'm, I just... Right? So you do other things, baking soda um, in college, right? Let's go back to when I'm 18, 19 years old. What do you do? You take baking soda and you put at least six cartons and you open them up in your refrigerator because it absorbs what? The, the odors, the smell. And it's a lot easier than having to actually clean out your refrigerator. So you've taken something that was intended for one thing and now you're using it for something different. And we do that in all regards, in a lot of different aspects of life. We take something that was intended for one thing, we use it for something different. Some of you are really good at holding on the rear bumper of your car with a bungee cord. Right? I mean, that's what we do. And sometimes that's a brilliant thing to do, and it's what we need to be able to do, and we need to be creative like that, right? But here's what we're going to discover today, is that you can take some things that were intended for one thing and use them for something else, but there are some things that you should never, ever use and alter their plan or their purpose or what they were actually intended for. That's what we're going to discover today, and we're going to be forced to evaluate whether or not we're using what God, what Christ has done for us in a way that's not intended, in a way that he did not create, in a way that he does not intend, in a way that does not further us and push us forward down the path of righteousness, down the path of transformation that's a continual process of knowing him more intimately. And so to learn about that, to, to recognize that, I want us to begin by reading today John chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. We're going to go all the way through 25, but I'm going to start with the first half of that, John 2, uh, verse 13 through 17. Will you please stand for the reading of the Word of God? And this is how it reads. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So according to the gospel of John, we know that how many gospels are there in the New Testament? There's four. There's first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are called to be, are considered to be the synoptic gospels. And now you have John, which is more of a historical view of everything that's taking place. Um, and according to the gospel of John, this is a second sign for Christ in terms of letting people know that he is Messiah, the ushering in of the Messianic era. He started last week, we know, with the wa uh, water being turned to wine. And now here he is stepping in and he's, he's doing something pretty significant. This very thing is also spoken about in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here's the difference. is In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have this uh, story, but it's la Jesus' last week. It's just before his death and his resurrection. So it's his last week of ministry, and he, uh, he walks into the temple. I mean, I'm sorry, he walks into the city through the east gate for the very last time. Hopefully you remember this. This is during Passover. He does this 
um, a week before his death. This is Holy Week. And then the next morning, he goes into the temple. He turns over the tables and everything else. So in those Gospels, it's at the end of his ministry. Here, it's at the beginning of the ministry. Some would argue this is a second time. Others would say, it's, no, it's the same occurrence. It's just John doesn't care about the chronological order. That's not what he's trying to communicate. Um, don't get too hung up on that because I don't think that part of it matters nearly as much as we want to believe it does. Um, but here he is, and he's stepping into the temple. Now, the temple rec- uh, symbolizes so much to the Jewish people. And you go back to the Old Testament and know that even that temple signifies the presence of God in their lives. That's why they would face the entrances to their tents and everything else toward the temple that would have been set up. That's why they did that. And so the temple had so much meaning to them. During Jesus' day, this is what that temple would have looked like. I'll give you just a picture of it very quickly so that you can see this. You see that court of the Gentiles where the majority of people were together. Also, the primary temple area that's taller. This is in a museum there in Israel, a replica of what it would have been like during the the day of Jesus Christ. So here they are, and they're gathering, and there's places in this that they would have been selling in the midst of this temple. They would have been selling these sheep and these oxen and these pigeons that are mentioned here in the Word of God. You're going, why would they be doing that? I can't people bring, right? We know that they had to come, they had to make a sacrifice to God, but why can't they just bring their own, right? BYOS, bring your own sacrifice, something of that nature. Well, you look at it, and it's because during the time of Jesus, already over half of the Jews actually lived outside of Israel. So here they would have been coming in for the feast. They would have been coming in for at least Passover, but for other festivals as well. And when you're traveling that type of distance, they wouldn't have been bringing all that with them. And so what they would do is not only did they have people who were selling um, the pigeons and the cattle and things like that, the oxen there uh, in the temple, they also had people who were the currency exchange. It's kind of like going to the airport, international airport. You go into another country. They use a different currency than what we have, than the, the dollar. And so you have to exchange that. Well, people were coming in from other places, and so they would first go to a place to exchange the currency, and then they would go and they would purchase a sacrifice in order to make that to God. So these things are happening. I don't think, and and this is a story that's somewhat well known by those, if you've been coming to church for more than a couple of years, you hear about Jesus turning over the the tables of the temple. Um, I don't think that Jesus was upset about the fact that you had some people who were trying to make sure that others had a sacrifice. So the actual selling of the animals for sacrifice, I don't think was the issue. And we're going to dive into this more, but I don't, that's, not, that's not the real problem here. There was a, also a required annual half-shekel uh, tax for the temple. We know this according to Exodus chapter 30, verse 13. And so they would have been coming in to exchange currency for that as well. Even Jesus coming in to cleanse the temple was a fulfillment of prophecy. Um, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 speak about the prophecy that Messiah would come and actually cleanse the temple. And so here's another instance, another situation where Jesus Christ is showing, I'm fulfilling every single prophecy. Don't you know? Don't you understand? That's me. And here he is cleansing the temple. Something that was written literally 600 years, 550 to 600 years prior, here he is fulfilling that prophecy as well. And so we see all of this happening. And we have to ask ourselves, what's the real meaning? What do we really learn? What do we really take from this? What's the significance? Well, I want to read for, uh, for you from Matthew chapter 21. Uh, this is when it speaks about it toward the end, the occurrence where Jesus is entering the temple um, and he turns over the tables of the temple um, in Matthew chapter 21. I want to read just a verse. You can stay in John chapter 2 if you want because I'm going to come right back to that. But I think this really helps us to, to see what's unfolding, okay? John chapter 21, he says this. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. You have made it a den of of robbers. The money changing, the selling of the animals isn't the thing that got Jesus so riled up. 
Like when it's Jesus, Son of God. Remember, he had just performed um, the miracle according to this passage, whether it's chronological or not. They had already seen him in the very least turn water to wine. But at the end of his ministry only, they had seen so many other miracles. All of a sudden, they see this guy who is both strong and gentle get furious, get angry about something. And if you see that happening, you want to know why. Like some of you, maybe you come from a, a family and your mom is always just even killed. Like my wife, one of the things I love about my wife, she's always pretty much even killed. Like she's just always there, always gracious, always kind. But when my wife gets riled up, run. <laughs> like, right, you want to know what just happened. If I get that phone call, if I'm at work and my wife is like, get home, I'm getting home because something really bad has happened. This is Jesus, though, and he's upset about this. He's angry about this, and you want to know why, right? You want to know what is it. And so he calls out in Matthew, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The problem wasn't the money changing and the selling of the animals. It was the corruption that in time started to exist, right? The very thing that they intended to be good. Hey, we're going to help people out. We want people to worship. We want people to have a sacrifice to make before God. And so, hey, we can provide them here. Maybe we can even do that at cost. Maybe we can, right? The way it began was healthy. It was good. It was right. But all of a sudden, everybody's profiting for self. It was no longer about helping people come before God and to experience his presence, to know who he is. It was about profiting for self. It was the corruption, and it infuriated him. The emphasis had shifted from a house of praise to a house of trade. That's what we see. The emphasis had shifted from a house of praise to a house of trade. And so he uses this homemade whip of cords, this, right, this, these ropes, and he drives out the sheep, he drives out the cattle, and he dumps out boxes of money onto the ground, and he calls out, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. That's, that's what we see happening. Or you can see it now, right? Here comes Jesus. Here's a table just to give you an illustration. And he takes it, and here they are. And he just comes in, and he takes it, and he just starts throwing all of the tables over. And he says, what are you doing? I mean, you can picture it. I mean, there's tables all over the place. And it, you can hear, like imagine the, the bags of coins like just real quick, imagine them hitting the ground and the noise it would make and them rolling all over the ground. And some of them would probably, even if one rolled up and hit their foot, maybe, maybe bend over and grab it and put that in their pocket. And that's what we see happening with the tables on the temple. You see, there are some things that we can take and we can use those. We can shift those and we can use those for other things. What you should never alter from its original purpose is Jesus Christ. And they had taken that and used it for something other than what it was meant for. So here he comes. With this anger being directed at those selling and handling the currency that were corrupt. That one, one of the, this is one of the ways I, I think about this passage, at least the first half. Really, really all of it. But I, I look at it and Jesus could see through the veneer of their faith. Right? So this table here, we have these all over because our church, um, they're just, they're somewhat light. They, they're move, uh, they can be moved around really, really easily. Um, and all of our rooms are used constantly by different organizations and stuff. We love it. We just we bring as many people in, and, and usually we just say, hey, you can use it as long as we can pray for you. It's kind of the rule. We think that's a pretty good deal. We're going to pray for you. You get to use the space. Um, so we use these, but here's the kicker about this table. 
is that this has a veneer on it, right? You know what that is. Hopefully you know what that is. This, is, this isn't real wood. This is just a, a, a really thin, probably like one, literally one thirty-second of an inch thick on top of this, maybe. Like, it's thin. In fact, if I took any kind of heat, I could pour some water on here. I could pretty, pretty easily probably pull up, especially if you give me any kind of tool, pull up this top layer of veneer. And underneath what you have is a, primarily a bunch of sawdust that's been compacted and glued together to create a solid surface. That's all it is. Like, you know it's not real. In fact, even in your home, like, you'll go to a house and you purchase a house and you start looking at the cabinetry and you open it up and you want to know, is it, is it real wood? Like, is, or is it just all fake? Is it something that's been manufactured because one holds up and has better durability than the other and everybody wants the real thing versus the fake thing? And so we go, okay, is it real? And yet Jesus is looking at what's happening in the temple and he can see that their faith is actually a veneer. It's cheap. It's artificial. It's not real. And as a result of that, he's upset. He said, I can see your faith. It's not genuine. Otherwise, you wouldn't be trying to profit so much off of what my Father has done for you. Here's a question. If, let's make this personal. Isn't, that's always a fun thing to do in a message. Let's make this really personal. If Jesus came, he, let's say if he's coming today, 223, he's going to knock on your door. He's going to be at your house. He walks in, and here's the big question for us. Is there a table in your house that he would turn over? It's not, it's not real. It's not genuine faith. Like maybe it's your marriage. Right? We all, I talk about it all the time. We know a large number of people are simply waiting in their marriage, are waiting for their kids to get out of the house so that they can get divorced and go live their own life. Some of you are doing it financially, right? And you act like one thing, you want to pretend you have all this wealth, but you just, you're, you're swimming, you're swimming in debt. So much so you can't even begin to think about being obedient to God and to tithe and to be a part of what God's movement is here in this place. But yet you're not willing to actually make any significant changes in order to correct that. Some of you, it's not even financial or with your marriage, it's with other relationships or it's you as a father or as a mother and you don't really know how to be a good father or a good mother but yet you're not willing to do much about it to change. Is there a part of your life that Jesus, if he showed up today, would come in and turn the table over? And he would say, what are you doing? What in our own lives would Jesus turn over? I can't, I, let's just have the honesty of that. Right, that's one of the, I think it's one of the most beautiful things about Chapel Point. We want to ask those questions, and yet we all know we have those areas at some time in our life. Every one of us. So we're willing to ask the questions and go, let's figure it out, because we don't want for Jesus to turn over anything in our life because we have a genuine, authentic faith. We're not trying to use the name of Jesus for anything for what, other than what it's intended. And for these individuals, here he is. He's calling out in this passage, right? It says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Well, this is Psalm 69. There, and, and yes, we live... Uh, at this point, there was no chapters, no verses, or anything else like that. But they would have known that he was calling out scripture. And he's going, hey, you know what? Zeal for my house is no longer what is happening. You've taken what was intended to draw people into my presence, and you've made it something different. You have a veneer of faith. I see it. It's evident. Personal gain was greater than the pursuit of godliness. And the anger of Jesus came out as a result. Religious practice, religious routine, religious tradition, religious ritual was being used as a cover for greed and for personal gain. 
And it was, a, it was a system of hypocrisy. So it matters that Jesus turned the table over. And he continues to speak to these leaders. Now, you've got two primary groups that are responding or speaking to Jesus. One, what you're going to see is you have the disciples or you have the Jewish leaders. When it says the Jews, it's speaking about the Jewish leaders or the Pharisees and um, and so we're able to examine this. It says in verse 18 and following, it says, The Jews then responded to him. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? So he's throwing the, the table over, and it tells us the Jews, the Jewish leaders are wanting to know, What are you going to show us to give us proof that you have a right to do this. You stepped into the temple, you did this, hold up. And Jesus answers, answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has, t- <laughs> like, I can hear that chuckle underneath their voice, <laughs> like, oh, hold up, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, it was roughly um, 46 years it had taken them to start rebuilding this. So that's, they're laughing about this. But what they didn't understand, but he, he, that he was speaking about the temple of his body, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, Many people saw these signs, everything that he was performing. And so as a result of seeing these signs, they believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind. He didn't need anyone to bear witness about him, for he himself knew what was in man. It's a really interesting passage because here in these last seven or eight verses, we see the temple being mentioned nine different times. Now, there's two temples that he's speaking about here. One, he's speaking about the physical temple, right, that represented the presence of God. You've got to know that. Like, if you look back at the temple, the easiest way to think about the temple um, is that they would face all of their tents, everything, the opening, always toward the temple because it was the presence of God. It's the primary thing that the temple represented was the presence of God. But he's also speaking about the other temple, which was his body. And they didn't understand that. They didn't get it. <laughs> all right? So that's part of the probably, I think, why there was a chuckle because it was about 20 years before the birth of Jesus Christ that Herod the Great began rebuilding the temple. So here he is, and he's starting to rebuild the temple the full completion of it, the full completion was just before its destruction it's in 70 A.D. That makes me chuckle a little bit because it was just prior to this. But here he is at this point. They had already been working. They had done the majority of it already. And for 46 years, they had been working and working and working and trying to rebuild the temple. And so here they come, and they, he speaks these words. He says, zeal for your house is going to consume me. The Jews are looking at him after he throws over the tables, and they say, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all these things? So they question Jesus, and they say the following, by what authority do you have? By what authority do you have? We speak about it frequently. We always need to be examining and asking the authority. What authority are you giving? What authority are you giving to Jesus in your own life? So these Jewish leaders are asking for this sign for his authority of his actions. They asked John the Baptist the same thing in John chapter 1, verse 25. I spoke about that just a couple weeks ago. And what we find is Jesus answers this in what I think is one of the most important parts of this passage in verse 19. When he says the following in verse 19, he says, Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
He's talking about his body, the temple. And he calls this out for them. He's speaking about his death and his resurrection. Now, again, if you weren't here last week, when we're looking at Jesus turning water into wine, from the very beginning of the Messianic era, when he ushers that in, we know that he, he was very aware that his death was coming, right? That's why he looked at his mom and he says, for my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He was aware that that death was going to be coming. And so now, once again, he's referring to his death and he's letting them know in verse 19 very clearly, destroy this temple, I will raise it up again in three days. In three days, I'm going to raise it up. So he's speaking of this, and then, of course, in verse 20, they question him again. Come on, how? it's been 40, 46 years. We've been working on it. How is that possible? And certainly they didn't understand the magnitude to which he was speaking. We don't understand the magnitude to which he is speaking. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered Right now it's going back. So later on, when the disciples, after his death, when they remembered all of this, then they said, ah, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What authority are you giving to God, right? So here's the thing that we recognize is the Jews at this time, they wanted to see the different signs. They wanted to see the different miracles. And it was through the signs and the different miracles that they ended up believing. Now, here's, here's, here's another way to think about this. Right now, we'll just play a little game. Maybe you can do this with your friends later on. I want you to think about this. Is there something that God could do in your life right now that would cause you to have greater faith? Now, just think about it. Is there something that God could do in your life right now that would give you greater faith. And yes, Jesus calls out to us and he says, come to me, all you who are needy. Yes, come to me, right? He calls out to people and he says, ask and, uh, and you know, ask and you shall find and all these different things. Um, but hear me say this. If you have to have a sign, a greater sign of who Jesus is, in order to prove to you who he is, guess what you're going to need in, in next week? Guess what you're going to need? Maybe not next week, maybe next month. Yeah, you're going to need another sign. And so all of a sudden, your faith is determined by God stepping in through his son, Jesus Christ, and performing these signs for you. Here's what we must understand. God has already done everything he's ever promised to do in the giving of his son. He owes us nothing more. Nothing more. You see, that's part of the, what we've done in the Western culture is we actually believe, even in our faith, that God and Jesus is here for something different than what he has promised, that he is here to give us a greater career, that he's here to make sure we have the money that we want. That he, the, the struggle with all this is it's shaped around our preferences. If God has to do a greater sign for you, then it's just going to lead to him needing to do another sign. And so it speaks about this understanding that the Jews had a faith that was rooted in signs in the physical, while the disciples rooted their faith in Scripture. I'm asking for you to examine whether or not you have rooted your faith in Scripture or whether or not you've rooted it in signs. It's why we always blame God for stuff, because we have an understanding and an expectation for God to do something for us, even though he's already done everything that he needs to do, but because we have a veneer of faith, it's, it's, just, it's just not real, it's not genuine. Because we have that veneer of faith, right, we expect God to basically step in and to continually do for us. And so then when we don't get what we think we deserve, when none are good, none are righteous, not one of us, then we get upset with God because of our cheap artificial faith. And he knows this about them, and so he steps into the temple of all places and throws the table over. 
And then he begins to have this conversation, letting them know, listen, your faith is rooted in signs and the physical. Your faith needs to be rooted in who I am and what I will do and in the word of God. Are you giving the proper authority to God? What authority are you giving God to take precedence in your life? Do you have a faith that is true and genuine and authentic? Or is it a veneer? It's not. And if anything gets spilled on your faith, right? That's why so easily some of us abandon God as soon as things, as soon as things start to go wrong, right? It doesn't take much for the top of this table to start bubbling up. And we get really upset, and we're like, I can't believe, God, that you're letting this happen. God allows it to happen because we live in a fallen world, my friends. We live in a fallen, broken world, but there is always hope in the name of Jesus. So we have this faith. It's just it's a veneer. And that's the thing we have to process. You know, most of us think of Jesus and we go, hey, man, what else can Jesus do for me? God, give me this career that I want. Give me this money that I want. Give me this relationship that I want. Give me this car that I want to drive. Give me these clothes. Make sure that I have this school. If I can't get into this school, I guess God doesn't love me. This is what I've been going for over and over. We have an understanding of God needing to do more for us for us to actually have faith. God doesn't need to do more for us. We need to accept more of God. the mentality of what can Jesus do for me? How can we gain from him? Jesus has already done for us. Jesus has already done for us everything he said he would do. And if you're simply waiting to do more for Jesus until he has done more for you, it won't work. Too many of us treat our relationship with Jesus like we would with a sibling when we're young, right? What do you do? There's this little thing. My kids will go out. Even at Halloween, they get candy. Or if they even get other gifts, I'm amazed. They put everything out, and what do they start doing? Bartering with each other. I got three Reese cups with five dum-dums. Three Reese cups, three Reese cups, three Reese cups, five dum dums, five dum dums. I got six dum dums, seven dum dums. I got seven dum dums. Anybody? Seven dum dums for three Reese cups? If not, you're crazy. And we start to barter. Faith with Jesus is not to be bartered for, it's already been paid for. Well, if Jesus does this for me, then I'll do this for him. So here he steps in the picture, and he's, they're like, listen, there's no way you can rebuild this in three days. What they didn't understand is Jesus was stepping in, and he's declaring, I'm the new temple. The temple was there primarily for you to be in the presence of God. You can now be in the presence of God. I am God. I was from the very beginning. I am he. I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the son of God, the man of God. I am fully who he is. I am his son, your redemption, the lamb of God, slain for you, rose on the third day, kicking the tail of Satan. He is the new temple. And just as God wanted to live in the people with the tabernacle and the temple, now we can do that through his son, Jesus Christ. He has already done what he needed to do. And it's one of the things I love so much about Jesus. One of the things I love so much is we, we all have those things in our life that we're not even proud of. Right? Some of you are married to someone and they don't know all your secrets. They don't know all the things that you're not proud of, maybe. And yet God, through his son Jesus Christ, I, he knows every one of them. He knows every one of your faults, every one of your problems, every dumb, stupid thing that you have done. And so even then, Jesus, knowing every secret, is still willing to love you unconditionally. 
knowing every single secret, Jesus is still willing to love you unconditionally. And when you're afraid to tell some people about what you've done, he's going, I got you. Like, I already knew anyway. I already knew what you did. I remember being a little kid living in South Alabama. And I may or may not have used a, a bowl of china for a bowl to dig some dirt with. Actually, this was about my neighbors. This, this guy I know took his mom's china and used it as a bowl in the garden. Started digging all the dirt, putting it in there. Guess what he did with the china bowl? He broke it. Dumb kid. I can say that because it's actually me. He knew that he had to tell his mom later on, guess what I did? And he didn't. He's like, hey, mom, guess what I did? I'm real sorry. And then he couldn't get it out of his mouth, what he did. And she goes, what did you? Did you maybe break something? And I was like, how did you know? He already knows every mistake we've made, and yet he still loves you. He still adores you. And here he is, he's calling out. He knew that a lot of them didn't actually believe. He knew that a lot of them had a veneer of faith. That's why he says in this passage, he's like, listen, it's during the feast, he's in Jerusalem. It says many people, verse, verse 23 and following, it says many people believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. They believed when they saw the signs. But then it says, but Jesus on his part, he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew their faith, it was just a veneer. And then he says, right after this, and, but hey, he did, I don't need anyone to bear witness for me about who I am. Because it says he himself knew what was in man. He knew that there was a veneer of faith that wasn't real, that wasn't authentic. And I think that really what our prayer needs to be is that we need to pray that we can understand that real, life-altering, saving faith in Jesus it comes by recognizing that your current condition can only be made right by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you don't have to have anything outside of that in order to live a life of freedom, a life of hope, a life of value, a life of purpose, a life that has so much more meaning than you can recognize. It is only the resurrection of Jesus. And that's all you need to know in order to have a genuine faith, an authentic faith. Will you pray that God gives you a genuine faith? It will catapult your marriages and relationships It'll catapult the way you see your finances and your resources when no longer it's a veneer of faith, but it's a real, radical, genuine, authentic faith that is good and of God. Everything alters. Everything changes. And my prayer for Chapel Point is that every single one of us would embrace that type of faith. We have much to do for his kingdom. God, I come before you in the name of Jesus. And I'm praying that we have a genuine faith, every single one of us here in this place. And if there's anything in our life that is just a veneer, that's not genuine, that's not real, that's not authentic, God, let us be courageous enough to be honest about it so that we can offer that to you and allow you to step in. God, you know every one of our dark secrets, every one of the problems that we have, and yet you have loved us anyway. 
mountains and mountains of love have been heaped upon us. And so we open up our arms, we open up our hands, unclenched, unfolded, and we give you everything. We say, God, have your way. And Lord, if we're taking anything, if anything in our life, if we're using you for a false motive, a false agenda, for anything, God, forgive us. If we're using you to simply get more of what we personally desire, rather than allowing you to consume us so that we might be used to further your kingdom, God, if there's anything in our life in that area, please give us your direction and give us your purpose. May we sit in your promises as we declare that there will be no more veneer of faith. We love you and we praise you. Amen. Would you stand with us as we worship God together?
What is that one area of your life that is just a veneer of faith? And it's not genuine. It's not authentic. Here's the thing. Every one of you, please hear. God's, God's got so much more than what we currently know. He's got so much more than this. One of the reasons you were created was to be his mouthpiece and to speak the words of life through the name of Jesus Christ to other people. What an honor. He has so much more. He has so much more. Know that we would love to pray with you about it. There's a prayer room right there in the back as you leave. But know his strength, know his grace, know his power, know his might as you allow him to transform your life completely. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Have a great week, guys. Take care.